Well, good morning, Redemption Hill Church. We send you greetings and trust that as you are gathered together in your living rooms or your kitchens, that already your hearts have been turned towards Christ. I invite you to pray with me now, and we'll continue worshiping the Lord together. Lord Jesus, we've already sung this morning, confessing our need for you. We are broken people who are empty apart from you, but we trust that your grace is able to cleanse us and fill us and change us to be who you have created us to be. Lord, we confess that you are our only hope. We have no life outside of you. We have no help outside of you. We despair of relying on our own strength. We know there's nothing in the world that can meet our needs and grant us salvation and fill our hearts. So, Lord Jesus, we come to you. And we ask now that as we open your word, that you would reveal to us ways in which we have looked elsewhere. I pray that you would convict us of sin and that you would also assure us of the pardon that comes through the grace of your cross. God, do your work in us today for your glory. I pray for your help and pray that each who is watching and listening right now would be open to the work of your spirit. We pray this, Jesus, in your name. Amen. I want to invite you to turn again with me this morning to James chapter 4. James chapter 4 in our text this morning will be verses 1 through 10. So go ahead and turn there, and then we'll read that together. James chapter 4, verses 1 through 10. In chapter 3, if you remember, James talked about the danger of the tongue. And he also talked about the, the worldly, earthly wisdom that leads to disorder and every vile practice. And in both of those texts, we, we tried to emphasize that really the problem is in the heart. And now in chapter 4, James gets all the way down to that level and deals with our hearts. James chapter 4, verses 1 through 10. Let's read together. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace? Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Conflict is an inevitable part of the human experience, whether it be international conflict or political conflict or marital conflict or even conflict within the church. Why is that? Why is it that we experience fighting and quarreling? Well, the apostle James 
uh, or the pastor James, rather, being a spirit-filled pastor, being the wise pastor that he is under the influence of God's spirit, he tells us why. He says the issue is the passions in our hearts. The issue is always the heart. This passage teaches us that sinful desires, selfish desires, really create two problems for the Christian. It creates conflict with other people, and even more seriously, creates conflict with God. I want to look at both of those today and then discuss together from this text how we should respond, how we should deal with um, these problems in the heart. Verses 1 through 3 show us, first of all, that sinful desires are the source of conflict with others. It's the source of conflict with others. James starts by asking and then answering this question. Verse 1, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this? that your passions are at war within you? He pinpoints the source of our conflict, passions, desires. This is the Greek word hedone, which we get the word hedonism from. You probably caught that. The King James Version translates it as lusts. These are strong desires that are out of control. You see the theme here in verses one through three mentions passions in verse one and coveting and desire in verse two and then passions again in verse three. You see, we all want the things that we think will make us happy, don't we? We want the things that we think will bring us pleasure, the things that we hope will satisfy us. Although Christ ought to be the object of our highest affection and desire, all too often our desires, our wants, our passions become fixed on things of the world like material gain or relationships or success or personal accomplishment. And the object of those desires may not itself be sinful. For example, there's nothing wrong with wanting peace and quiet, wanting rest or something like that. But when these desires rule us, when these passions control our hearts, when they become selfish obsessions, then such passions lead inevitably, James says, to conflict. These passions that vie for control over our lives are basic to the human fallen condition. In Titus 3 verse 3, Paul says, we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. That describes the human condition apart from Christ. Those who are lost are enslaved by these passions and desires. And James says that these passions now wage war within us. Verse one, he says, is it not this that your passions are at war within you? Although we as believers, those of us who have been made new through faith in Christ, we are set free from bondage to sin. We're no longer slaves to our passions, but we're still embroiled in this unending battle against the presence of these desires in our lives. Paul mentions this inner battle in Galatians chapter 5, verse 17. He writes, For the desires of the flesh are against the desires of the Spirit. And the desires of the spirit are against the desires of the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. I probably don't have to convince you. If you love the Lord and and want to follow him and try to follow him, living a life of obedience and faith, then you know that 
Although we are free, we have a fight on our hands, don't we? Our battles with others, James says, reveals this inner battle between the flesh and the spirit. And that is why perhaps you experienced conflict this past week. Conflict with your family. Conflict with a coworker, Conflict with a friend. These strong urges are churning within us and grasping for control of our hearts. Let me give you some examples. Perhaps you have a strong desire that you may not even be aware of, but it rules you. A desire perhaps for control. You want to control outcomes. You want to control circumstances. You want to control results. You want to control processes. Perhaps you have a desire for approval. You want others and and feel deeply that you need others to think a certain way of you. Perhaps you have a desire for self-sufficiency, to do everything by yourself and not need any help, or a desire for comfort or success or the sympathy of others or material gain. Maybe for you, it's a desire for entertainment or a desire for privacy or a desire for rest and relaxation. When desires for these things rules us, then here's what's going to happen. You're going to end up treating other people as tools to be used in achieving your goals. Or you're going to see them as obstacles who must be overcome in order for you to get what you desire. You'll see others either as a resource to help you get what you want or as a threat, who, people who may jeopardize your happiness. And that's what leads, James says, to conflict. Very simple. What happens when two people have conflicting desires? What happens when two children want the same toy? We've all seen that play out. It's conflict. What happens when, maybe a little more complex, what happens when a husband desires the security that comes from saving money, but his wife desires the thrill or the happiness that comes from spending money? You're going to have conflict. And many people may think that it's a money issue. The money is the problem. But it's not about money. It's about desires. It's about the passions. That's why you're experiencing conflict. You see, when someone else fails to deliver what we desire, or when they cause us to lose what it is that we treasure most, then we feel hurt. We grow resentful or angry, even bitter. If that describes you, James says it's because you've deified your desires. Your goals have become your gods. And therefore, you are waging an unholy war on all who would interfere with or interrupt your idolatrous pursuits. This is what lies at the heart, James says, of our quarrels and our fights. It's not about communication. It's not about love languages. It's not about different personality types. Our people problems stem from our passion problems. Whether it's a spouse or a parent or a roommate or a coworker or someone within the church, the source of our quarrels and fights are sinful desires, that obsession with getting what you want, of winning, of being right, of being first. When you're consumed with finding pleasure and fulfillment for self, then you're going to be willing to step on other people to get there. You'll be blind to their needs and their well-being. And when someone bumps into your idol and threatens your happiness, then you're going to get angry and lash out or become perhaps defensive. It's really interesting to me in reading this text that James really doesn't seem to be all that interested in who's right with their disputes. He's not concerned about who shot first or about who was wronged, about who's in power or who is disadvantaged. 
He's really concerned with the attitude that they are demonstrating. It's about the heart. That is what matters. You see the same thing when the Apostle Paul writes to two women who were embroiled in a dispute in the Philippian church. He urges Yodia and Syntyche to agree in the Lord, but he doesn't side with either of them. He's concerned about their heart and about their spirit. Why is that? Why is that? Well, it's because the nature of these conflicts itself, it shows us that something is wrong. Sinful conflict, first of all, reveals a heart that is consumed with the world. If that describes you, conflict, because of these desires, it shows that you are consumed with the world. Verse 2 says, you desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You see, the heart that is ruled by these passions is obsessed with the horizontal, coveting, wanting something that you don't have. You crave possessions and position and pleasure. And James says it's this inner lust for gratification that leads to the darkest kinds of sin. That word murder seems to almost jump off the page. Really? He says you desire and do not have, so you murder. James is deadly serious about this. He knows that the heart can be homicidal. When we allow these sinful desires to remain unchecked, what happens is our attitude matches the attitude of Cain, the one who killed his brother out of jealousy. This is here to highlight the seriousness of our sin and to get our attention. God wants us to see the danger of allowing ourselves to be consumed with what we can get here. But this sinful conflict also reveals a heart that ignores God, a heart that ignores God. Look in verse two, at the end of it, he says, you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You see, these desires obsess over the horizontal and ignore our vertical relationship with God. James says God isn't on their radar. And this is evident because they haven't asked him for anything, but have rather pursued it on their own. And even if they did ask him, even if they did pray for these desires, it was just a brief momentary acknowledgement simply to help them get what they want. It wasn't any sort of expression of worship or dependence or faith. I think sometimes our prayers probably sound a lot like this to God. God, I really love and worship this thing, this experience, this dream of mine, and I want you to give it to me. Lord, I want it so badly. And in fact, once I get it, I know I'll be able to ignore you and find all my joy in this worldly thing. So can you please give it to me? Thank you, amen. When we approach God with this heart, he says no. He says no. God is not interested in replacing himself as the object of our highest affection and delight so that we can worship our idols. He's not interested in providing and supplying us with our idols. The Westminster Shorter Catechism famously opens with this summary of our purpose in life. It asks, what is the chief end of man? And the answer is this. Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That ought to be how our hearts are oriented. But idolatrous desires and prayerlessness or selfish prayers, it reveals a heart that's ignoring the worth of God and seeking joy elsewhere. Asking wrongly, verse 3 says, to spend it on our passions. This is the divided heart that James talked about in chapter 1. 
James calls such a person a double-minded man who can expect to receive no answer from God. God isn't interested in helping those who seek him merely as a means to their own ends. Verses one through three shows us out of control passions leads to conflict with others and reveals a heart that is focused on the world and ignoring God. And as a result, secondly, sinful desires are the source of conflict not only with others, but a source of conflict with God himself. That's the second point. Sinful desires are the source of conflict with God. Look with me in verses four and five. Verse four, James speaks strongly to us and says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? James's words to us are sobering and they reveal the seriousness of this issue that we have in our hearts. You see, these kinds of passions and desires reveal a spiritual infidelity. Infidelity. James does something shocking here to get our attention and to, to, to help us see this sin for what it really is. Although nine times throughout this book, James has used the endearing and affectionate term of brothers to address his readers. Here, he calls these people literally adulteresses. Adulteresses, or the, the ESV sort of expands it, you adulterous people. You see, the church is the bride of Christ. He has chosen us and pursued us, initiating a relationship with us, purchasing us by his blood, setting his love upon us and making us his own. But idolatrous desires, these out-of-control passions, show that we are seeking pleasure in the arms of the world. This kind of spiritual unfaithfulness has always been described as adultery. We see this throughout the Old Testament. It's considered to be a breaking of the covenant, a rejection of God's love, and, and a returning of evil to him for all the good that he has done to us. And even more, he states in verse four that to be a friend of the world is actually to become not just an adulteress or an adulterer, it's to become God's enemy. These desires show a spiritual infidelity, but also cause a spiritual enmity. Do you not know, he says in verse four, that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. If you remember back in chapter two, James had described the faith of Abraham, saying that because of Abraham's faith, he became a friend of God. But friendship with the world is a statement of unbelief, and it makes us the enemy of God. Friendship with the world. What does James mean here by the world? What does it mean to be a friend of the world? We need to understand this statement. James doesn't just mean the people of the world. <clears throat> For instance, we know that God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. The, the people of the world is not what James has in mind here when he refers to friendship with the world. And, and he's also not just talking about the planet Earth because we know that this world, in, in the sense of this creation, was created by God as good, and it was made to reflect his glory. Psalm 119 tells us, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above shows his handiwork. No, what James is referring to here when he speaks of the world, 
He's referring to a counter kingdom, the opposite of God's kingdom, the system of the world that rejects God and subverts his truth. This is what the apostle John refers to. In 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, John writes this. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away, along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. I think John's on the same page with James. The world is its desires. These things are a problem. And if you love the world, the love of the Father is not in you. And James says here, if your desires for the things of the world cause you to be a friend of the world, then you're making yourself an enemy of God. What does it mean to be a friend of the world? The the word friend here, it means a whole lot more than simply clicking on a button in some social media app. It means more than just talking to someone across the fence in your backyard. The idea of being a friend of the world has here the sense of aligning yourself with the world, identifying with the world, of being an ally on the same team with the world. It's bad enough to be adulteresses, but it's even worse to side with God's enemies. But James says we position ourselves as enemies of God when we submit to the world's ethics instead of to God's, when we embrace the world's values instead of God's, when we desire the world's treasures instead of desiring God. Why has James come down so strong? I mean, why is he calling some of us adulterers or enemies of God? Isn't that a bit harsh? It may sound a bit foreign to some of our ears, but when we understand who God is and when we understand the depth of his love, the majesty of his glory, And when we see his character displayed in history on the pages of scripture, we start to recognize that this language is more than appropriate. James points out in verse five that God is a jealous God. He is jealous. We often think of that as a negative term when we apply it to people. But the jealousy of God is righteous and holy. It is pure. This describes in in the heart of God the emotion of a husband who burns with grief and anger when he discovers his wife with another man. That jealousy is right. As our Redeemer, God has set his love upon us and committed himself to us. And the Old Testament paints for us a vivid picture of a God who is jealous with a holy and righteous jealousy, who rightly desires the love and worship that he so deserves from his people. And James points us to this rich and repeated theme with this statement that the scripture says, in verse five, that he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. This is not a quote of his specific text, but rather captures the flow of the entire Old Testament story. In Exodus chapter 20, verse five, for instance, we hear the words of God, you shall not bow down to them or serve them, speaking of false gods, for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. Exodus 34, verse 14 says, you shall worship no other God for the Lord whose name is jealous 
is a jealous God. To say that his name is jealous means that this is at the essence of his character and his nature. It's who he is. Zechariah chapter 8, verse 2. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am jealous for Zion with a great jealousy, and I am jealous for her with a great wrath. You see, God has created you and me in his image And he has breathed the breath of life into us. And he has made us with a capacity for a relationship with him. And he yearns jealously, James says, for us. So for us to have a double-minded faith, to have a divided heart, to be, in a sense, in bed with the world, is to incite his jealousy and to set ourselves against him as his enemy. Basically here, what we see is a collision of desires our sinful, selfish longings for the things of the world and God's righteous, jealous longing for us. To set ourselves against God in this way is nothing less than spiritual insanity. It is foolishness to the highest degree and it can only end badly for us. God doesn't make empty threats and James wants us to not take this warning lightly. For the Christian, friendship with the world can only lead to heartache and loss and regret, and a painful discipline from the Lord. For the unbeliever who persists in this conflict with God, it can only lead to eternal destruction, to the judgment of hell. Idolatrous desires, it doesn't just cause conflict with other people. Even worse, it causes conflict with God himself. So where do we go from here? What do we do if we see evidence of this kind of conflict with others and with God, if we see these passions at war within us? Well, verses 6 through 10 shows us. Sinful desires cause conflict with others, conflict with God. And then thirdly, sinful desires require a deep repentance. It requires deep repentance. Look in verse 6. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. The condemnation of our quarreling and the warning of God's jealousy, it's not without a word of hope. And I'm so thankful for that because it is so deeply convicting to read the first several verses of this text, verses one through five. Our sin, James says, is idolatrous. It is adulterous, but, but... Verse six, he gives more grace. God is willing and God is able to cleanse us, to overcome our sin and our unbelief with his grace, to forgive our spiritual infidelity, to reconcile us to himself so that we are no longer walking as enemies. Because of Christ's atoning work on the cross, God can cleanse and forgive and restore our hearts redirecting our desires and our passions and affections to him and granting us freedom from the guilt and condemnation of our past sin. So to whom is this grace given? Verse six. Well, James makes clear this grace of forgiveness and restoration and reconciliation, it's not given to the proud. It will not be given to those who fight to win, those who pursue selfish gain in this world. This grace is given to the humble, to those who lay aside their proud and selfish desires, 
to those who stop their fighting, to those who, who renounce their friendship with the world, those who come to him in repentance. If Psalm 51 in the Old Testament is the most explicit uh, Old Testament text on repentance, I really think that verses 6 through 10 in James is the New Testament counterpart, the most vivid description of true repentance, one of them that, that we find in the whole New Testament. And although these words may sound harsh in a society like ours, because James talks about here about, um, if you look with me in verses 9, being wretched and mourning and weeping, letting our joy be turned to gloom, that, that sounds harsh and heavy and condemning to us because our culture celebrates self-esteem. And, and this is almost foreign and alien to us. But these words actually hold out good news to us. And if we ignore them, if we skip over them, if we push them away, we will miss out on God's grace. Are you a spiritual adulterer? Have you been walking as an enemy of God? Has your pride been poisoning your heart and driving your desires, wrecking your relationship with other people and with God? then here we find good news that there is a pathway to peace with God. This is where you can find his grace. Consider the pattern of repentance here that James lays out. First of all, in verse seven, he says, submit, submit. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Submitting means placing ourselves under Christ's lordship, committing ourselves to obey him in all things. And this submission to God, if that's one side of the coin positively, it has a negative flip side of the coin. To submit to God goes hand in hand with resisting the devil. Really, you can only do one or the other. We can either resist God and submit to Satan, or we can submit to God and resist the devil. These are really the two options. And we've really sort of seen this theme throughout James's letter already that maturity and wisdom, this is Christ-likeness, but flammable words and counterfeit wisdom, that is set on fire by hell. It is demonic in nature. So repentance begins with a commitment to submit to God and to resist sin and sin's author. And then having done so, having submitted ourselves to God, and verse eight tells us we are invited to draw near. Verse eight says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. This is really an amazing thing. Don't read through this too quickly. Don't become overly familiar with this invitation. Don't feel this command as a burden, but embrace it as a privilege that we who are adulterous and idolatrous, who walk as enemies of God, are invited to draw near. It's an amazing thing to me that we are invited to draw near. And not only that, but that God himself, this jealous, righteous, holy God, whom we have sinned against, he promises to draw near to us. Just like the father in the book of Luke, that the father of the prodigal son who stands at the gate waiting to run towards his returning son, to throw his arms around his filthy neck, that is the heart of God towards you. And towards me. God waits to draw near to those who will humbly seek him. So we submit to God and then we draw near to God. This is an expression of our faith, believing that he will cleanse, that he will forgive. 
But this repentance also requires and involves for us a forsaking of our sin. Repentance involves forsaking sin. Look in verse 8. In the second half, he says, Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. If you are serious about seeking God and drawing near to him, It's not going to work to draw near to God if your sin remains, if your heart is unchanged, if you're still clinging on to your sins and continuing in them. It's going to make it impossible for you to draw near to God. James says we must forsake our sin. That's what he means by cleansing your hands, you sinners. And he says that we need new desires. He says, purify your hearts, you double-minded. Our sin problem is not just the things that we do. It's the passions and the desires of the heart. So we need not just external cleansing, we need internal purification. That comes through the grace of God as we draw near to Christ at the cross. We trust his work, his blood to cleanse us. And we surrender our spirit to him so that he might purify us and cleanse us. We're called here to renew our vow of faithfulness to Christ, to come to the cross and receive his cleansing. God must be the one thing that we seek. If our hearts are pure, purified, if our hands have been cleansed, it means we've, we've turned towards Christ and away from our sin. Repentance involves forsaking sin. And verse 9 shows us that this forsaking of sin, the, the, the power to do it, the compelling motive behind it, it, that it's often accompanied by a deep sorrow. Deep sorrow. Look in verse 9. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Why would James say this? Why are these tears called for? Why is joy to be set aside and why are we to be wretched and to be in gloom? James isn't telling us here that we're to mope around and feel sorry for ourselves. No, what he's describing here is a deep hatred of our own sin. When your heart is truly turned to God, you will grow to hate your sin. It will cause you pain and grief to see it. The worldly pleasure and sinful gratification that once brought momentary happiness will be replaced by a godly sorrow. This is an indispensable mark of true repentance. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10 says that godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. We have to be careful here because there's a kind of sorrow, a kind of grief that does not mark true repentance and it does not lead to an experience of God's grace. It leads to death. There's a kind of grief that is hollow, There's a kind of grief that is shallow and temporary, a grief that is sad only about the consequences of sin, a kind of grief that weeps only over the pain that this sin has caused to us. But there is a true and genuine sorrow over sin that grieves over the cost that Jesus Christ had to pay on the cross for our sin. A kind of, sin, a kind of grief that, that weeps and is sorrowful over the impact that our sin has had upon the people around us. Such sorrow gives evidence of the Holy Spirit's work of gracious conviction in the heart of the sinner to bring about true repentance. Perhaps some of you have never felt this way. Maybe you believe the, 
the propositions of Scripture, that Jesus is the Son of God and he died on the cross and rose again, that everyone who believes will be saved, and you sort of affirm some of the truths that are found in Scripture. But maybe your sin has never really bothered you that bad. Perhaps you've never been sickened spiritually over the sight of your own sinful heart. If that's the case, it's because you've been blinded by your pride. You've never shed a tear over the wretched fruit of the flesh. And let me just say this, that tolerating your sin in that sense is the ultimate act of pride. It is the utter absence of humility. There is no repentance there. And God resists that kind of heart. If that describes you today, then you need to examine yourself because true, genuine, saving faith always starts with repentance and it will be marked by ongoing repentance. Without repentance, there is no salvation. So don't be like Lot's wife. Do you remember the story? Lot and his family were fleeing from Sodom, which was about to be destroyed by the judgment of God. Lot's wife was, in a sense, forsaking sin, but she looked over her shoulder. Her sorrow was over the fact that she wouldn't be able to enjoy the things that she used to in that town. She didn't mourn over her sin, but she mourned over the pleasures she was leaving behind, and she was judged. It was the wrong kind of sorrow. Rather, we are to show the kind of sorrow that the tax collector in Luke chapter 18 did. He stood in the back of the temple, wouldn't even raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his chest, crying out, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. That is the kind of grief and sorrow that James calls for here. And this section ends with a promise. If you humble yourself before God like this, you know what will happen? If you repent like this for your sinful passions and your spiritual infidelity and your friendship with the world, do you know what will happen? Look in verse 10. Humble yourself before the Lord and he will exalt you. This brackets together this, this section on grief and repentance and reminds us of how he started. In verse six, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble repentance, that's what James is calling for. If you humble yourself before God like this, he will lift you up. He will forgive you. He will cleanse you. He will replace the empty and shallow joys of the world with a deeper, truer, and lasting joy in knowing him. There is no pleasure in infidelity, seeking the joy of sin. There is lasting, true joy, real blessing, an ongoing and ever-deepening experience of God's grace as we humble ourselves and submit to the Lord and draw near to him in repentance of sin, believing his promise that he opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. This is the humble response of repentance that is required if we see within our hearts these passions and desires that are causing conflict. James says our fights with each other shows we have a heart problem. And more than just having problems with others, we really have problem with God. 
But we can be thankful this morning that the grace of God has been extended to us through the work of Jesus Christ. And no matter how great our failings, no matter how ugly our sin, he is ready and willing to give grace to those who will humbly repent before him. So look within your heart today and ask God to reveal the selfish desires, the sinful passions that may be present. If you've been convicted by the Spirit of God today, then the text tells you exactly what to do. Repent of your sin, grieve, submit to God, draw near to him, humble yourself today, and he will give grace. He will lift you up. His grace is great enough to overcome and forgive the sin of our hearts. The call to faith in this text is to forsake the small and momentary joys that come from sin and allow God to lift us to an infinitely higher joy that comes from resting in his grace. I love what Matthew Henry wrote so long ago. The joy of the Lord will arm us against the assaults of our spiritual enemies and put our mouths out of taste for those pleasures with which the tempter baits his hooks. Let that be our prayer today, that our joy in Christ would so eclipse the shallow joys of the world that our passion, our desire would be for him and him alone. That we would be like the psalmist says, like a deer that is panting for water in the wilderness, seeking God, seeking him alone, seeking him above all else. Take heart. God can work in you. He can change you. And as you change, your experience with others will change and your experience of God's grace will change. Sanctified desires will become satisfied desires. The humble will see his face. Those who draw near will experience the joy of his presence and the lowly he will lift up. Let's ask God for that grace today. Grace and strength to see our sin for what it is, to respond in faith as God calls us to. Grace to draw near. Heavenly Father, we confess that our hearts are prone to wander. I feel that today. I see this reality in my own heart. Lord, we know that your church is often affected by conflict, quarrels, and fights. The families in the church are often impacted by quarrels and fights and arguments, competing desires, conflicting passions. God, we need a deeper experience of your grace today. Lord, even the conviction of sin is a grace. It is a gift that your spirit would help us to see ourselves for who we really are as we look in the mirror of scripture. Thank you for the conviction of your spirit. But God, we thank you even more for the promise, the comforting promise of grace, that you give more grace. As ugly and as awful as our sin is, as many problems as our sin causes, and as dangerous a position it has placed us in as we often act as enemies of you, Lord, your grace is greater. It's greater. Thank you. Lord, we need that grace. There's not a one of us listening who doesn't need your grace. God, some of us need to repent today of specific sins, specific desires. I pray that today you would enable 
us to respond in faith and repentance and obedience and submission and humility to what you've laid out before us. We thank you for this pattern of repentance that James gives us in this text. Lord, help us to be doers of the word today, not to go away without changing, but to receive the truth of your word and respond accordingly. We pray, God, that you'd be glorified as we continue to grow in grace. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.